Hello and welcome. I'm Dr. Adam Dorsey, a psychologist in Silicon Valley and the host of Super Psyched, a podcast dedicated to supercharging your life. Each episode contains fun, high-quality interviews with experts looking at psychology from all angles. Super Psyched is your tool to get more of what you want in your life and less of what you don't. There are no two ways about it. Parenting is hard. Add a full-time job to the mix and the pressures of modern life and wow, it's a miracle we are able to do it at all. How can we balance all of life's pressures and be the best parents for our most precious beings, our children? How can we do it and remain kind to ourselves and still have great lives? To answer these and many other related questions, I'm calling on one of my newest friends, Dr. Yael Schoenbrun. Yael is a psychologist in private practice and an assistant professor of psychology at Brown University. She's also the host of a podcast called Psychologists Off the Clock, on which I recently guested. She also has written a book I loved called Work, Parent, Thrive. 12 science-backed strategies to ditch guilt, manage overwhelm, and grow connection. Wharton professor and best-selling author Adam Grant said, as a working parent, it will save you more time than it takes to read. So listen in as I converse with Yael, who shares how we can work, parent, and thrive. Dr. Yael Schoenbrun, who has asked me to call her Yael, welcome. Too super psyched. Thank you. I'm super psyched to be here. <laughs> oh, yeah. I love your book and I love being on your podcast and just so enjoying getting to know you. Grateful. I hope everyone checks out that episode because you were awesome. And I had a huge migraine and Adam carried the episode for me, which I'm oh. truly grateful for. It cemented our friendship. That's so nice. Yes. It cemented our friendship. And it's so fun also just to note that you and I were brought together by a former guest of mine and a mutual friend who wrote about compassion and parenting, Susan Pollack, Dr. Susan Pollack, who often teaches at Harvard, brilliant book, and your book in general. Just, I loved work-life parent. It was such an easy listen. I listened to the book and this is one of those types of books that you listen to. It's funny how oftentimes health food is not the food that you look forward to the most, but it was as delicious as a dessert to be enriched with this very healthful and edifying and research-based book that some people might think, oh my gosh, will it be dry? And the answer is unequivocally not. This is so much fun to listen to and so important, definitely on the must-read list for anyone who's a parent or who will become a parent. Oh, thank you so much. That's so nice. I do think that often books about parenting and just psychology in general can be a little dry. So that was Definitely one of my goals was to make it fun and story driven and also have some humor in there, but also kind of tuck in some science and some good clinical practices that have science backing them. Absolutely. And poodle sized burritos. But you'll have to also, read the book yes. to understand what that even means. <laughs> we are recording on a Friday. And so little tidbit to foreshadow for anyone picking up the book is that there will be burritos for dinner tonight. <laughs> yes, that is part of your family ritual. And I think it's so yeah. crucial. But let's talk about just the basic premise of the book as we get started. As Susan Pollack beautifully said in my interviewing on self-compassion, she described parenting as the impossible task. 
And you kind of take a look at this impossible task of parenting and you look at work family conflict and try to establish evidence that work family enrichment can be a possibility. And you back it all up with science and philosophy. It is really, really good. Can you tell me a little bit about the genesis of the book and what you hoped to accomplish? What was the why behind the book? So the why is that when I became a working parent, I must admit that I really thought I had it in the bag. I was at the time a postdoc at Brown. I had a lot of professional early success. I had a supportive partnership. I had a flexible career, colleagues who got it, friends and colleagues who were already parents and doing the whole work family balance thing. And I thought, I totally have this. So when I became a working parent and I found myself crying on my commute to work Mm. and distracted while I was sitting there writing grants and feeling really ashamed of myself for getting lapped by colleagues when I was home with my child, I was kind of like, huh, something has gone wrong. I need to (laughs) figure this out. So I did what nerdy people do. I started reading everything I could get my hands on from the bookstore and the library. And most of what I found there was pointing to one of two things. So one is the systemic structural issues of lack of paid leave and workplaces that weren't flexible enough and partnerships that sort of weren't very balanced. And those weren't really my issues, even though they certainly are true. And then there was also like the time management issues, which also didn't really pertain. Now, I'm a clinical psychologist, so I was also, I think, just biased to look for something that was going to speak to the psychology, the identity shift that I was really struggling with. And I didn't really find it. So I started to look into the academic literature and what I found there met my desires more effectively. And specifically what I'm thinking of is I found this entire body of literature looking at this construct called work family enrichment. And that's this idea that each of our roles kind of presses on each other, that there is tension between them and that they can help each other out. And that it's really a challenge to figure out how to move from conflict to enrichment, but that it can be done in these particular ways. And I started reading more about the science of creativity and the science of rest and the science of happiness. And in all of these ways, tension between roles and this identity conflict that we can go through, we can navigate it in more and less effective ways. And there's real cool science and ancient Eastern philosophy that helps us understand what works better and what works less well. And so that's really what I dive into here is the more psychological piece, looking at how to move from work-family conflict into work-family enrichment in a realistic, practical way. What are some of your favorite gleanings you came across that just as you read them, you're like, oh, my God, I'm including this in the book and this is going to be super useful to me and clearly to the reader. Yeah. Somebody recently posted on Twitter, what did you learn as you were writing your book? And I have to say, I learned so much because I had these initial ideas when I went under contract to write the book. But as I really dived into the literature, I kept finding all of these really cool nuggets. So one thing is that We can be creative through kind of two different pathways. One is like really focusing on a problem to its like utter extent. It's sort of the more hours that you have, the more creative you can be. And a lot of excellence ideas, ideas of how to achieve excellence really suggest like it's about 10,000 hours and really focusing and getting deep. And there's absolutely truth to that. But there is another pathway. And the other pathway has to do with stepping away from roles and letting the non-conscious parts of your mind get to work. So this is the idea of like incubation because you're when you're not consciously focused on a problem. So that's pretty cool because when you have two roles and you're forced to step away, there's this opportunity for part of your brain to do its best creative thinking. And we can take advantage of that. 
And I'll share just one other fun tidbit, which is, you know, working parents, myself included, often complain that they don't have enough time to rest. Like we're tired, we're exhausted, we're depleted, we're being pulled in all different directions. But there's this really cool concept called psychological detachment, which is really just a fancy way of saying that we rest when we step fully away from a role. And there's evidence, and there's actually a very cool study following Israeli workers, half of whom were army reservists, and they were followed over a few weeks. And what they found is that the people who were called to fight in a war actually had reduced work burnout. And what that suggests is it's not about stepping into a different role, detaching from what we are doing and resting that matters. It's just the fact of stepping into something else and turning off the thing that you've stepped away from. So if you're stepping from work into parenting or parenting into work, the role that you've stepped away for you have a chance to recharge your battery for that role. And that's a pretty cool way to think about how to approach gaining rest in lives that are full of demanding roles. So those are two tidbits that I love. I love those. And Leonardo da Vinci famously would step away from a really complex problem. And I do that when I'm doing Wordle and I can't figure it out. And I know my 13 year old (laughs) has already figured it out. And he's going to just taunt me if I don't get it. And he got it. It's just amazing. But the act of stepping away, and obviously we don't have to do something as severe as go into a war. But if even stepping away and going into a war and coming back to one's work is evidence that people can return more refreshed, if there's ever been something that's counterintuitive, that would be one of those scientific stats that just like, wow, we really do need to take time off. And one of the things I talk about a lot is these ideas of these non-rejuvenating rabbit holes in our time off. Many of us during our time off use that precious time so poorly in such a non-restorative fashion. We stream Netflix while answering emails, while doing maybe three other things at the same time, And not really doing any of those things. And we return to work on Monday, perhaps not feeling rejuvenated. And one of the things that I really got from your book, which actually feels like a tree in many ways, because there are so many branches that all lead to the same place within the book, is that a real selfless thing to do is self-preservation, is attending to yourself so that you can be more present. And one of the things that you even suggested was a term that was unfamiliar to me. And I hope I don't botch it. I believe you called it alloparenting. Yeah. Let's talk about that for a second. What is that? And why is that also so important to really crush it as parents? So I'm going to put a pause in alloparenting because I wanted to say a quick response to something that you just said, which is that it's not the Netflix watching that's the problem. It's doing the Netflix while also mindlessly doing 12 other things. So I actually think it's such a great thing as a parent to really indulge and fully commit to whatever the restorative thing is. Like great if you get a charge to your parenting battery by stepping into work, but also detach from it all and really savor the indulgences without guilt because they will be restorative. And I apologize. The way I even presented that was perhaps misleading. I am a huge fan of a good Netflix binge as a restorative thing, but doing it while doing something else totally. and not yes. actually immersing ourselves in the thing. Yeah. just doesn't really give us the kind of gains that I believe we're looking for. But yeah, no, I think that you actually were making that point. I just wanted to drive it home and give the example that one of the things that I think you actually do beautifully 
is you're like a pop culture fanatic from what I understand. I am. I love that you bring it into the work that you do in podcasting because it really brings ideas to life. So this is how different roles and different activities that we do when we fully immerse ourselves can feed back beneficially into our other roles. But that only works if you really pay attention to whatever it is that you're doing. So if you're watching Netflix, that can actually be great for your work. Or if you're watching Netflix, maybe it's great for your kids because you're gaining insight into some moral dilemma that you didn't have. So I think the point is, whatever you're doing, work on being present and really letting go of some of the guilt that can interfere with being present. 100%. And even just watching Netflix and watching, for example, Big Mouth and knowing who the hormone monster is, which is a very important character for understanding sex education from an adolescent perspective as portrayed by the brilliant Nick Kroll and John Mulaney and a whole bunch of other people. Maya Rudolph is on the show and they all really are attempting to normalize sex in a way. Former guest Shafia Zaloom, who wrote Sex Teens and Everything in Between, is a consultant to that show. And having access to certain characters from Netflix allows me to connect with my kids and to my clients and to the world. So I am a huge fan of pop culture, as you just said, and I'm glad you are too, and that you recognize its relevance, that it is edifying. And while it may not be Proust or physics, it's still important. Totally, totally. And that when we do things with that open intention of realizing that it can feed back to other things, we just get so much more out of it. All right. So a bit about alloparenting. So alloparenting is this fancy term from the field of anthropology that refers to the non-parent caregiving that can be offered to young children. And what the research shows is that humans are built, we've evolved to alloparent, to parent in groups with people who are not the biological parents of our kids. So we live in this very independent society where we are told often as parents that we're supposed to do all the things We need to be the ones putting our kids to bed at night. We need to be the ones making their healthy food. We need to be the ones bringing their jackets that they've forgotten to school. We need to be the ones comforting them when they fall and skin their knee. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't do all of those things, but I am suggesting that we don't need to do all of those things all the time. And in fact, there is huge benefit to involving other caregivers in your children's lives. There's benefit to you because those caregivers have not only the opportunity to give you a reprieve, which will help you to recharge your battery. But also they often have lessons to teach. So for example, you know, my kids were in daycare and certainly the first time I became a parent, I had no idea how to do any of the things and when to do them. So Jeannie, our daycare provider, taught me how to potty train, how to teach them to sleep through the night, how to help with their picky eating all of these different kinds of things. So she helped me learn how to do those kinds of things. And in fact, research shows that early nursing moms are more likely to nurse when they have people in their network that can actually teach them. It's not intuitive. These parenting things are not intuitive. So that for that reason, people in our so-called village are really helpful. It's also helpful for our kids because they get opportunities to learn things that we don't know, right, from other caregivers. They have the opportunity to learn how to develop bonds with other adults, how to be more independent, And if you're not around and they're not as comfortable with another caregiver, they're going to have an opportunity to creatively problem solve and tolerate discomfort. And those are really important skills. And in a way, because working parents are really pressed to install other caregivers because we work, this is actually a gift. And 
rather than feel guilty, the more that we can see it as an opportunity for ourselves and for our kids, the more we can, again, let go of that guilt and really use it to our advantage. I love that idea. And I think about Sesame Street and all of the roles that people on the street played for the development of children. It wasn't just Grover. It wasn't just Cookie Monster. It wasn't just Ernie and Bert or Gordon or Maria or one person. It was everybody kind of contributed to the net effect. And one of the painful things about being a parent is there's this part of me that wants to be everything for my kids. And I recognize, oh my gosh, I must relinquish the tutoring of math. I might be good at math, but I might lose my patience when I'm trying to teach my kids math. And maybe they might be better served by an external tutor. And that is part of the allo parenting process. And my child fosters a relationship with that math tutor. And it's incredibly beneficial to all parties for me to let go of that desire to do everything and be everything. And my son gets to have a different experience with someone else. And I also think it's corroborated by something I read rather counterintuitively, and it relates perfectly to a wedding. One of the basic ways to have a successful wedding is to give everyone or as many people as possible a role. And it should be a role that they're good at. You don't want to give an introverted person the role of greeter. You wouldn't want to give an extroverted, perhaps less focused person something that requires real concentration analysis. But give everybody a role. Make them an orchestra and everyone will feel more connected. It's like a, an Amish barn building project. So I love your idea of allo parenting on so many levels. And you sprinkle so much levity throughout the book. I mean, quotes from Amy Poehler and Jimmy Fallon and other great people. The Amy Poehler quote was something, it was like, you know, work is that place you go to feel guilty about, I forget the way you said it, but it was just so, there's so many nuggets of wisdom and levity throughout the book that I'm just so grateful to you for. One of the less light things, however, was a description of one of the most intense conflicts I've read about in a book. And it was, do I attend to my dying father in California who's in a coma and moribund and will die without really being aware of my presence? Or do I go home to my son whose birthday it is and my son has been looking forward to this birthday? And obviously not all parenting conflicts are like that, but it brought, I mean, every parenting conflict has an element of that just feeling torn aspect. I'm not going to give away the answer. You're going to have to read the book to find out what you did and how you dealt with it and how you felt about it. But I thought that was just really evocative and so on point to what it's like to be a parent. There's these moments where you just are confronted with the fact of there not being any good choice. And what do we do when there's no good choice? When if we choose our kids, then our work is really in danger. If we choose our work, then our kids might be heartbroken. And yeah, it's not maybe the same as a dying parent, but there is some sense of that where you just feel like you're damned no matter what you do. And it feels like a war being waged inside of you, but you don't know how to settle the conflict. And you want to, right? You want to do right by all the people and things that you care most about. And so what do you do? And so I won't give away what I did, but let me just give a little backstory, which is just kind of getting to know me, I guess, is that I had this book when that event happened, I was shopping the proposal around and I was editing it. I wasn't yet shopping it around, I was editing it. And I remember I had this start and my agent said, you know, we probably need something a little bit more getting to the heart of it. And then this event happened where my father was dying and 
it was sort of like the most painful thing I've ever experienced mm. psychologically, emotionally, familially, mm. and professionally. And I sat there after he passed away and I was like, I don't know what to do with this. And then I had this insight, I guess, that I think I can make art with this because this is so painful. I don't know what else to do with this. And I remember emailing her and saying, I'm going through this thing. I think I can write about it. And she was like, go for it. I did, of course, ask permission from all of my family members to include that very personal story and they gave it happily. (laughs) But the psychological tool that is helpful in those situations is something that comes from a treatment called acceptance and commitment therapy. And it's this process of clarifying values. And values are defined as sort of a quality of action. It's how you take your journey. So that's different than a goal. A goal is more where you're trying to get to. And most of us are trying to get to like happier, better, the right choice. We don't have control over that. And so when we don't have control over it, one thing that we can do is decide for ourselves, how do we want to show up in this moment? What matters the most to us, given the context that we're in, given what we're going through, given what really matters to us? And there's a number of questions that I use in the therapy room that come from this treatment that are really helpful in clarifying that. And I ask myself those kinds of questions. And it's things like, what are the main ways that I'd want my children to see and remember me when I confront these difficult choices or even traveling forward 30 years? What would make me proud 30 years from now to have stood for as I went through this tough point? And ultimately what I did was I asked, what do I think my father would want me to stand for? And that for me was very helpful. And the reality is there was no good outcome. My father was dying. Things were happening in my family life. Things were happening in my professional life. But knowing that I clarified for myself in that moment what I thought would be the most important thing for my father is helpful for me even now as I continue to struggle with that event because it it is sort of just like one of those painful things that I've been through in my life. But having that clarity of values was really such a saving grace. And you know, I'm just feeling your feels right now. And I'm feeling a bit cheerful myself as the one who loves his dad so much and just can only imagine, you know, just how difficult that was and remains today. And that think about the three different types of conflicts that we can face. And there's the approach conflict, which is like choosing between two awesome ideas. Like, do I go to Tahiti or do I go to France? Geez, I don't know. There are different things, but they're both tantalizing an approach avoid conflict much easier do i go to tahiti or do i go to a worn torn place i think i'm choosing tahiti choosing between two awful options and choosing the less awful the avoid avoid conflict and you had to choose between two bad options and by the way what i neglected to mention was that your son was in the east coast at the time so it was either be on the west coast with dad or be on the east coast with your son and as i also think about making art out of this i think about one of the most brilliant depictions of trauma and that is in the recovery from it. And the trauma is the breaking of pieces of something that is really precious. And the healing comes from putting those pieces together in a different fashion, creating some form of art, but recreating, using those same pieces and creating something different. And that's what you did. I'm just so blown away by it. And I'm so grateful to you for being I was just like, oh my gosh, I was listening to this and I was just like on my knees practically. It's like, oh my God, this is one of the toughest things I've ever listened to. And you shared it 
in such a vulnerable and courageous way. And I'm just really grateful to you. This is what our field needs to be doing more of is humanizing ourselves. And that's what you did. Thank you. That means so much to me. It's hard to articulate what it was like to write it. And it it is actually very strange to me even now, you know, a month after the book's publication to know that it's out there. But I don't regret it, but it is a strange thing. And I do think we need more of it. You know, when I read pieces from other professionals, psychologists, people in related fields who really show the reality right behind the nice, neat Instagram feed, it makes you feel connected and seen. And like you have some new ideas of how to handle difficult experiences of your own. And again, I mean, I think that working parenthood has all of these kind of smaller but daily experiences like that. We're not sure what to do. And it feels like we should know. And the reality is we can't because there's sometimes just not good options. We have to pick something or we pick nothing, which is the worst of all. But at the end of it feels like you've let someone down. And and most of all, we feel like we've let ourselves down. And that, I think, is something that we can transform our thinking around. That is what I think is really important, that this conflict doesn't mean you're broken or that you're doing anything wrong. It means that you've evolved in lots of roles that matter to you. And that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. And it's a really difficult thing sometimes. So self-compassion should be along for the ride. That'll be helpful. But also having clarity and a lot of willingness to kind of move between things in a gentle with yourself and flexible way. And I think that's just such a key point. And it's corroborated by so many of the leaders with whom I've spoken, including the chief legal officer, the DA of Santa Clara County, Jeff Rosen, who said, you know, if something comes to my desk, it's not going to be choosing between two good options or a good and a bad option. It's choosing the less sucky of the two options. I have to choose the less bad option. And that is corroborated by virtually everyone I speak with in the C-suite, if it makes it to their desk, choosing something less bad. And in parenting, that is such a hard thing to integrate. And it's such a key part. I mean, I think about this quote that I heard from, I believe it was from Carlos Castaneda, at least that's how it was conveyed to me. And that is when you become a parent, it's as if your chest has been carved open and your heart is now exposed to the world. And that was conveyed to me the first time I saw my son trying to walk up the stairs. My buddy Bob said, "Eh, this is is when I was just like, oh my God, it's going to be okay. Can you make it, you know, and I heard that quote and that just sometimes when you hear poetry that's later corroborated by science, oftentimes it's just, it's very helpful. I want to go to one of your other key points that is such a gift of your book, and that is the notion of subtraction in our lives. I mean, if there's anything that runs counter to how we are built, it is subtracting and we're wired to acquire, we're wired to get more. And subtraction is actually something that we need to do in our lives by hitting that control alt delete button and do a system override. And there are many benefits that you explain what subtraction is and why we need it. And I'd love for you just to speak a little bit about that, because that is one of the great gifts of the book. So that idea comes from this terrific book called Subtract by a researcher by the name of Lydie Klotz. And I got to interview him for the book. He's an awesome guy. What was so fun is that he actually had conducted all this research showing the ways that we're wired to acquire and how we are systematically likely to neglect subtraction. He has this really cool nature paper if you want to read the primary science or read his book because it's really interesting science. But it wasn't until I interviewed him that he had this sort of realization that 
He really works hard to be deliberate about subtracting things from his life. But what he hadn't thought about is how that applied to parenting. He'd been sort of doing a ton of parenting in ways that weren't actually very beneficial for his kids. And so it was this kind of aha moment where he was kind of realizing, oh, I'm so aware of this and I still neglected it in this important social role. So basically, let me back up a little bit. So when we are confront a problem in our life, whether our kid is struggling with something or there's a challenge at work, our tendency is, okay, what more should I be doing? Kind of the automatic thing. And that makes sense from an evolutionary perspective, because in pre-modern times, if you hit a stressor, it was most likely that not enough calories, not enough shelter, not enough human connections. And so the natural adaptive response was more. But that's no longer true in our modern times, especially for busy working parents or people who have a lot of demanding roles in other areas as well. But because we don't think about subtraction and actually what's interesting about the science is that the more overwhelmed we are, the more likely we are to neglect this as an option to creating a better outcome. And so even if we might like the idea of like a more empty closet or a schedule that has some downtime in it, we have a hard time doing the action to get there, which is taking things off our plate. And so realizing that is actually powerful because we might think, oh, less shouldn't be so hard. I just stop doing or I do less or I say no. But actually the impulse is so strong in us to do more, to add, that we need to be very deliberate, establish habits and be very aware that our tendency is gonna be to say yes and add more. And so what's helpful here is to recognize that wiring And to build in behaviors, habits that help you to be more deliberate about subtracting. And the other thing that I'll say too, and this is another way that conflict between roles can help us, is that at times you're going to need to leave work to be there for your kids. At times you're going to need to leave your kids to go be there for your work. And so we can use those pressures as a cue. There's so much going on. I really can't do it all. What needs to be taken away? So Don't run away from that pressure, that sort of sense of overwhelm. Instead, use it as a cue to take things off your plate. And the more you can do that and reflect on what kinds of activities are you engaging in that are not value aligned can make your life a little bit saner. I know it makes my life a lot saner to be able to do that. 100%. Sometimes the biggest yes we can give ourselves is a no to something in our lives. And Marie Kondo, who has made a huge name for herself. Marie Kondo, for those of you who are not Japanophiles like me, I lived in Japan, so I must pronounce her name properly. She's really talked about the art of simplicity and getting rid of things that don't bring a spark of joy to your life. And what a great criterion, a spark of joy. And in your words, is this aligned with my values in a non-tangible? Is this non-tangible thing something that we need in our life? Or is this just actually distracting us and maybe even causing us to employ RAM space to things that do not require RAM space in our lives and causing maybe system overload? Totally. And I love what you're saying, because I think that is a line that I often think about, like saying no to things that are less important so you can say a more wholehearted yes to the things that are And it is so hard to do, but recognizing this is not effortless. It takes effort. It takes discipline, can help you to do it more effectively. Totally. And I would be remiss if I didn't ask you what is over your left shoulder and over your right shoulder. I see a great picture (laughs) of a goldfish with a shark fin that says mindset is everything and something over your (laughs) left shoulder with psychology. And I'm just wondering if you could share with the audience what they cannot see behind you because you've clearly deliberately put these up. 
Well, first of all, I will just disclose that I'm, I record audio for my own psychologist and for yours in my closet. So I try to at least have a little bit of decor. So on my <laughs> closet door, the one that says psychology has script under it. It's the definition of psychology, which is the science that tells you what you already know using words you cannot understand. <laughs> I just think it's funny. It's really funny. <laughs> that is really I've funny. Gotta poke a little fun at what I do for a living. And the other one, which is this goldfish that has a shark fin on it, it says mindset is everything is the principle that I live my life by, right? So much about how we live, how we grow, what we enjoy is about our mindset. And if I could go on a little soapbox tangent here, I'm really into the mindset research, which Mm. started with pioneer Carol Dweck. And she first studied learning, student learning. And what she found was that people who have what she calls a fixed mindset, this idea that capacities are inborn and not changeable. And she compared those individuals to individuals with a growth mindset, individuals who believe that with effort, interest and persistence, they can get to a different place where they started. So for folks with a fixed mindset about, say, math, if they struggle, they're not likely to persist and they're not likely to learn and grow as much as somebody with a growth mindset. Now, that kind of makes sense in the learning sphere, right? If you're sort of open and believe that you can learn and grow and that you are somebody who can figure it out, you are more likely to make it. But it turns out that growth versus fixed mindset is helpful in so many areas of life, including things that we just assume are fixed. You know, we have this belief, for example, that people are like born with a certain level of happiness. There's happier people and there's less happier people. We think it about personality. This person is introverted and that person is extroverted. And certainly we think about our roles. These two roles only conflict. They can never help each other. And so my book is really about helping people to move from a fixed mindset about work-family balance, work and family exchanging with one another to an enrichment mindset. And it's this idea, I think, that is like, rather than a fixed pie of like, when I'm parenting, I'm not working. When I'm working, I'm not parenting. And so they're competing against each other. It's this more yin-yang idea of like, they help each other out. They create harmony. They feed each other. And it turns out, and there's research backing this up too, that there is validity to that enrichment mindset. And by the way, it doesn't mean that we don't experience conflict. That tension is real, but with a mindset that tension can actually serve us, that it can help us grow. Even when it's painful, it helps us to access more of that growth. And I am 100% with you that mindset is everything. And I remember the first time I came across Carol Dweck's work, and I'm so grateful that she has put this out. One of the things that I got from Poe Bronson's work, who wrote a book called Nurture Shock on Parenting, He kind of cites her work around the idea of don't say your child is smart. Don't talk about the externals. Talk about the internals. Talk about the effort that they are exhibiting. Because as soon as they begin to think of themselves as smart, they won't try as hard because smart people don't have to try. But if you describe them as a Rocky Balboa type and somebody who shows up 100% and gives it their all and leaves it all on the field, they will show up with that winning learner growth mindset. And I just think that mindset is everything. And that image that you've chosen is phenomenal and (laughs) a total reflection of you. Is there anything, Yael, that I should have asked but haven't yet asked? Can I share the three pathways of enrichment? Because I just think they're edifying in terms of how do you get to enrichment? So the three pathways are skill transfer. So when you're in one role, you're not in the other. But what you are doing is you're 
enhancing a skill. So Adam, when you're podcasting or when you're seeing patients, you're asking curious questions, you're thinking analytically, and you can teach your children that. So those kinds of skills feed back into your parenting world very beneficially. When you're parenting, doing perspective taking, you're practicing compassion, you're being very patient. And lo and behold, those kinds of skills are very helpful in the workspace. So the skill transfer is really helpful and can, again, help us to sort of turn off whatever role we're not in, knowing that we're actually serving that role well by really trying to do our best in whatever role we are in. The second pathway is the stress buffer effect. And that's the idea that when we have stressful experiences in one role, they can be counterbalanced by positive experiences in the other. So I talk a lot about this in my happiness chapters, where the idea is that the more roles that we have, the more opportunities we have to have positive experiences. And we can't avoid the negative ones, but we can very deliberately seek out the positive ones in whatever role it is going to be most likely to serve that up. So for example, if your kid is going through a tough developmental phase, you can go to work and get a sense of competency. If you're feeling kind of isolated at work, you can go home and get a hug from your kid. And then the final path is the additive effect. And that's the idea that happy lives are built on having a lot of meaning and purpose. And the more roles that we can develop that sense of meaning and purpose, the more meaningful and purposeful our lives can be. And so Yes, there is tension. It is hard to balance it all. But when we can see that from a mindset of there's really cool opportunities here to have a lot of meaning and interest and make contributions that can help us really embrace it in more effective strategic ways. Wonderful. Glad you brought that up. And I'm glad I asked that question. So my final question. If you had the magical powers to confer upon all humanity one skill or insight that would give positive change to the lives of people, what would that skill or insight be? And how do you imagine it would impact the individual and perhaps even society at large? Well, going back to mindset, I think I would love to bestow upon everybody a growth mindset. The idea Mm -hmm. that where you start does not have to be where you end. And that what it takes is a willingness to keep trying to find the interesting things, to find the good teachers, to learn from failure, to grow from uncomfortable experiences. And I just think we so often get stuck in this is how it is. And it feels crummy, unfair, not right. And if we could just pivot a little bit and say, this is how it is right now. I'd like to get to a different place and then ask ourselves, so what now? What do I want to do now? And this reminds me of a conversation that I had with Edith Eager, who you've had on your show. Amazing. I love her. And her book is so great because she says, victims ask, why me? And survivors ask, what now? And that's such a growth mindset thing to ask yourself. So when you encounter challenge or injustice, ask yourself, what now? What do I want to do? How do I want to grow? How do I want to tolerate this? What lessons are there for me in this moment, in this experience? So wise. And Edith Eager is a just, what a great person to bring in. And I am just so happy to know you, Yael, and to have you contribute to the conversation around parenting in such a profound way. Yours is a book I will be giving out to parents for sure. It will be one of my go-tos. And I am so grateful for you sharing your wisdom with my listeners, there is no question that they are far enhanced from where they were. Their mindsets and their growth has been incurred just in the minutes they've listened 
to your wise advice and insights. So thank you for sharing. Well, thank you, Adam. I am so grateful for you, your wonderful podcast and for our friendship. I'm just grateful there's people like you in the world and that you get to be in my world. Right on. Well, the burrito is on me and we're going <laughs> to and I can't wait to hang out and eat an overly almost the comically sized burrito with you in the near future. <laughs> I would love that. This is Dr. Adam Dorsey thanking you for listening to Super Psyched. If you know anyone who might like it or who might benefit from listening, share it. And if you like the episode, please hit subscribe 